conversations and find our seats. As you're finding your seats, you can open up your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah. It will be in Nehemiah chapter 4 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a black hardbound one somewhere around you. And this morning's passage can be found on page 400. Also will be on the screen. Um, Yeah, I mean, I'm tempted just to have a moment of silence for all Arkansas sports fans this morning. So, um, but... Uh, The gospel is still true this morning, and so we will continue to look at God's word um, and the good news that he's a restoring God, so he can build something beautiful out of something that's broken. So um, (laughs) on a serious note, um, we do live in a very important cultural moment right now. Um, The message of the book of Nehemiah is so needed right now, the idea of a God who restores broken things and makes them beautiful. Um, All you have to do is look at the news this week. Um, Tulsa, Charlotte, continued racial tension that exists in our country seems like you put a band-aid on it for a second and then it gets ripped off once again. Um, that's the kind of atmosphere that we live in. Uh, also read an article this week that, that talked about a therapist and, um, and how busy they are with the political uncertainty that exists in this country. Uh, one, one therapist said that if he sees uh, seven clients in a week or in a day, that five of them want to talk about the political climate of this country, like people are genuinely paralyzed by fear over the future. So you combine that with the fact that there's a whole generation of people that want to begin to move past surface level Christianity. You know, they want a faith that's meaningful and lasting and makes an impact. And it presents us as the people of God with a really unique opportunity, I think. And so I think Nehemiah positions us well to begin to um, speak into some of the brokenness of the world. I mean, really talk about God's posture towards the world. Um, it's really important for us um, to think about how God wants us to engage with the culture. If we think that God is primarily calling us to escape from the culture, you know, what we'll end up doing as the people of God is kind of building some kind of weird Christian subculture, you know, we'll have the Christian ghetto where we will wear really funny clothes instead of Abercrombie and Fitch, we'll have a breadcrumb and a fish, you know, that's, that's the kind of atmosphere where you build a Christian subculture, you make your own music, you make your own movies. Now, not all of those things are bad, but if we think that culture is primarily something that we need to escape from, well, that's going to, um, really, it's going to shape our approach to how we want to live out life in the world. If we view that culture is something primarily that God is against, you know, it's going to make us into kind of soapbox Christians where we're going to be cultural warriors and we're going to want to really get involved in the political debate and we're going to, you know, we want to get prayer back into schools and we're going to want to get, you know, the Supreme Court just the right way. And some of those things are important, but are they the way that God wants us to approach the world? 
Now, what Nehemiah presents is a picture of a restoring God who ultimately would come into the world in the person of Jesus Christ, who would enter into time and space, into people's story, into their brokenness, and meet them precisely where they are. So this the idea that God is a restorer, that he's not opposed to culture, but he is actually over culture, and he's calling his people to be able to engage in the culture in such a way to bring hope and life and transformation. And we see an Old Testament picture of that in the book of Nehemiah. We have a restoring God, and God calls us as his people to be restorers. We have a wonderful privilege as the people of God in the midst of real darkness to paint a beautiful picture of the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, right? In a world that's looking for answers, in a world that's looking for hope, all you have to do is look at social media. I mean, people want to be heard. They want to be valued. And the ultimate answer to all of that comes in the person and the work of Jesus. And that's what the book of Nehemiah points us to. All of the fear and all of the anxiety gives us a real opportunity to paint a picture of hope. And so we're going to look at Nehemiah chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles open, would you stand with me? I'm going to look at some ways that God calls us to be his people in the midst of real distraction, in the midst of real difficulty. We're going to read verses 15 through 20 of chapter 4 and verses 15 and 16 of chapter 6. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me, and I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, our God will fight for us. Chapter 6, verse 15. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the, ma- the month of Il in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we, in these moments, we want so much to encounter something of your transcendent love. We didn't just gather here to mark a particular day of the week, but we 
came here to encounter you. I pray that we would see you clearly through your word. I pray that you would help us in the things that we are going through in our own hearts and our own lives day after day. I pray that you would fill us um, fresh with hope and with joy. To do that, we need you to send us the power of the Holy Spirit. I ask um, that you would fill me with your spirit that I might serve these folks that I love. You know my weakness. You know my fears. You know my frailties. Father, I exchange all of my weakness for your strength and your power, and I act because you indeed fight for your people. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you've been tracking with us for some time, we've been going through the book of Nehemiah. We're in chapter 4. And this is much more than just um, a group of people that are building a wall. This is a picture of God redeeming and restoring his people, where God is renewing them both in the city that they're rebuilding, and he's renewing them in their spirit. He's taking away all of their shame. He's taking away all of their failure. Um, And he's building a monument to himself that will shine like a light in the world. And what we see in the end of chapter 4 and the end of chapter 6 is the completion of this wall. And what really takes place in these chapters and these verses is we come in contact with a God who acts for his people. We come in contact with a God who fights for his people. A God who has all of his power, all of his majesty, all of his glory pointed at his people for their good to sustain them. Now, um, that might sound kind of elementary to you, but I'm telling you, what was happening in chapter 4? We looked at this a little bit last week. Last week we looked at uh, Tobiah and Sanballat who were the voice of opposition They worked with fear and intimidation. Now that the people of God are engaged in this action and this mission of building up the wall, there's actually troops on the ground and they can hear the boots, right? I mean, this is, um, I mean, you have to kind of put yourself in their shoes a little bit to go through what they're going through. I mean, I'm all for like renewing and rebuilding this city, like to see the gospel come in and transform things. But I'm telling you, if, if there's an occupying force that's outside the city, I mean, that's going to cause you to pause a little bit. So how does God take a group of people just like us that are naturally inclined to fear, that are naturally inclined to insecurity? How does he actually sustain them and cause them to be able to move forward in the things that he's called them to? And what we come in contact with is a God that's unchanging. He's unchanging in his character. He's unchanging in his promises. He's unchanging in his commitment. And that's really important for us because we think God is like us. We think that God's affection for us goes up when we do well. We think his affection for us goes down when we don't do the things that we think that we should be doing. But what Nehemiah is painting at the end of uh, chapter 4 and the end of chapter 6 is a picture of the steadfast love of the Lord that never ceases for his people. 
despite the fear, despite what they're going through, despite what they see. Now, on the surface, I mean, you could read the book of Nehemiah and you can think, man, this just sounds like a bunch of stuff that we're supposed to do. Like we're going to somehow geek ourselves up and we're going to be able to do some stuff for God. And if you read the book of Nehemiah like that, you'll become exhausted. But really what's taking place is God is revealing himself to his people and the way that God reveals himself to his people actually fuels worship and it fuels mission and it helps them to be engaged in all of their lives. And what this book does a really good job of is teasing out the initiative and the sovereignty of God and our response as the people of God to God's initiative. Now, a lot of times, like if you hear people talk about God's sovereignty and his rule over everything, it makes people feel like um, if, if God really is in control of everything, then why should we do anything? Now, that's a natural, I think, response in our minds. But if you trace out the story of God, if you look where people really begin to see that God is sovereign and that he is good and that he is in control, it actually allows the people of God to begin to step out in faith and it actually allows them to begin to take risk and it actually allows them to begin to do the things that God has called them to do because they have his protection, because they have his character that is pointed to them at, for their good. If we really believe that God is already at work and this idea of restoration is his idea, it's not something that we have to work up in our own strength. We're following him where he's already at work. And that's the point of the book of Nehemiah. And what we're going to see this morning is how God's people respond in the midst of distraction, right? Distraction is always with us. There are voices in our mind and in our hearts that keep us from seeing and believing the truth. There are distracting circumstances that come along that we are not planning for, that we didn't anticipate. And in the midst of all of those things, how do we actually still continue to live out the things that God has called us to do? See if you can pick up on God's initiative and people's response in these verses. Look at verse 15. It says, When our enemies heard that it was known to us, and look who's doing the work, God had frustrated their plan. So what did they do as a response to God's initiative? We all returned to the wall, each to his work. So we see God frustrating the plans of the enemy, and they return to work. And then you see these wonderful pictures in here of the people actually going to work on the wall. So it says that they have a sword that's kind of strapped to their side, and they're building with one hand, and they're ready to fight with the other. So they have this big overarching idea that you see in verse 20, that God is with them, and that he is fighting for them, that he is the one that is 100% for them all the time, and it allows them to continue to do the work that God has called them to do. So that brings us to our first point this morning. God fights and we build. God fights and we build. Now, it's been my prayer since we've started this series 
Like, because building is not about building a physical wall. But there are pockets of brokenness that exist in all of our worlds. There are ways that we want to see God work in our own hearts, in our families, in our city. And it's those things that I'm praying that God would give us some kind of vision for where He has called us personally to build. Where has He called me personally to be able to begin to address brokenness? So I'm praying that everybody would find an area like that personally, but also how do we begin to do that together as a church? How do we begin to live out this mission together? And I think the good news of these verses is because God is fighting for us, we don't have to be paralyzed by distraction. Right? It's so easy to become distracted by all of the things that could go wrong, right? So many of us spend most of our energy fighting invisible battles. Are you tracking with me, right? I'm talking about the battle of what if. I'm talking about the battle of if this happens, then I'm going to have to do this. And we can run a million miles without actually going anywhere, right? But the idea that God is fighting for us actually protects us in the midst of distraction because that means that we don't have to have it all figured out. It's not about our own resources. It's not about us having everything together in our own strength, but there is a sovereign and a good God who loves his people, who is absolutely committed to them despite the fact that their enemies are all around them. That's the message of Nehemiah chapter 4. Understanding God is fighting for us frees us and empowers us to do the things that God has put on our hearts to do. We don't have to wait for the other shoe to drop. We don't have to wonder what's going to be around the next corner because God absolutely is committed to his people. That all of God is for his people all of the time and especially in the moments that they fear. God is 100% for us all the time. It means we don't have to live in self-preservation mode, right? We don't have to spend all of our time, all of our anxieties, building our own kingdom and our own little world. But God actually is saying, I've got your back. I've got your front. I'm with you. I'm beside you. I'm 100% for you. I will take care of you as you follow me. That's the message of the book of Nehemiah. Now, God's saying in verse 20 that he is the one that will fight for us. It's God saying to you very specifically and very personally, I own the places you're afraid of. I will fight for you in your fear, right? That song that we sang this morning, I am no longer a slave to fear. That is an anthem of the people of God. God is saying, I will fight for you specifically at the place you are most afraid of. So these people are giving their labor to building this wall and there are enemies all around them and their only comfort and their only hope is that there is a sovereign God who is fighting for them that is 100% for them all the time. And that same God, because we have this picture 
in Jesus Christ, hanging on the cross, triumphing over death, being raised from the grave, that gives us a hope that they never knew. That there is a God that fights for us. That perfect love actually casts out fear. God fighting for his people gives us a clue to just how much he values people and just how much he values um, the message and the mission of restoration. Now, how many of you saw Jack Bauer become the president this week? Right? Did you get, catch Designated Survivor? Like, so if you're not familiar, Designated Survivor, new show that was out this week, and it kind of plays on the idea that there's one cabinet member that's secluded um, in the midst of a State of the Union address in case there's a devastating attack on the country. Well, obviously, um, Kiefer Sutherland is the star of the show, and the unthinkable happens, and the Capitol is attacked, and this lonely camp, cabinet member becomes the president of the United States. Actually, a really good show, so you can check it out. But every time I recommend a show up here, it usually goes really bad <laughs> the next week, so I'm just going to say that. Like, that's my, uh, that's my little caveat. But this is going to make sense in the book of Nehemiah, I promise. As soon as that attack happens, I mean, Keith R. Sutherland, I can't remember his name, but he is absolutely surrounded by secret service. Um, And who is fighting for you, right? The secret service shows the value that you place on what's actually going on, right? So the secret service is protecting him because he's the president. How much more? What, What statement is God saying to his people when he says, I am the God that fights for you? right? He's protecting us. He's fighting for us so that we can actually accomplish all the things that he has called us to do. So that means that mission is infinitely valuable to God. God is saying, I will invest all of my resources and all of my power so that the message of the good news of Jesus goes forward to the ends of the earth. God values that. It means that all people matter to God. We've got it plastered on the wall out there. That means every person matters to God. Rich people, poor people, gay people, straight people, smelly people, poor people, rich people, prideful people, humble people, all people matter to God. God is saying, I will own this mission because people matter to me. Right? So we get this privilege of joining with him and being restorers. So God fights and we build. Where is God calling you in the midst of your battle to build? It's that place that he wants to meet you. Point number two, God fights so we fight. God fights so we fight. So this idea that God is fighting for us. They are building with one hand. This is a beautiful picture of what it means to be the people of God. They are building the wall with one hand and they have a sword strapped to their side on the other. They are building and fighting. And and I think this really can serve the church today. And And I put myself as a member of the church. The church is the one that is on the move. 
right? The church is the one that advances. Um, the New Testament picture of this is Jesus in Matthew chapter 16 where he says, he says about this rock, he's talking about himself, he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, I've heard lots of well-meaning church people sometimes say they feel like the gates of hell are pressing in on them. But what we have to understand in the book of Nehemiah and what Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 16 is gates are not offensive weapons. Gates are meant to keep somebody out. The church is actually the one that is on the advance. The church is the one that's moving forward. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that the gates of hell cannot stop from advancing. So God fights so that we can fight. So we're not called to be here in some kind of holy huddle where we braid each other's hair, which we want to care for each other, but we actually are the people of God who are on the move because Jesus Christ is passionate about saving people from every tribe every tongue, every language, and every nation. We are the ones that advance. We are not under attack from the world. We actually are the ones that are bringing the move of God to the world, right? So God fights, so we fight. And then, this, this, I hope this is an enduring picture for us. Look at verses 18 and 19 and 20. This is what it means to be a community. This is what it means to need one another. We fight for one another, and we fight alongside one another. Verse 18. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me, and I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. And that can far often be the description of the people of God, far from one another. But in the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there our God will fight for us. So the picture here is the enemies are all around them. There, there are these weak points in the wall that have not been built up, that they're not complete. And when they saw the enemies marching around the wall, someone would blow the trumpet and everyone would rally to that point. And that's a picture of the people of God meeting each other at their point of need. It's a picture of the people of God joining together, using all of their strengths to overcome their weaknesses. That's a beautiful picture of the church. Now, Brandon Hatmaker, who is uh, the less famous husband of Jen Hatmaker, uh, recently wrote a book called A Mile Wide. And in his book, He describes a scenario that's eerily familiar to me. Um, He had a son, or he does have a son named Caleb. And when Caleb was a toddler, he put him up on a cabinet and he sat him down. And the same thing happened to me. Caleb, not quite able to sit up, but you think he can sit up, falls face first from the cabinet to the ground Right? And so that's every parent's worst nightmare. I think 
most dads have done that. Like, so there's, this is a safe space. Um, and that's where you know God's kind. Um, but actually, this, this actually went pretty bad for Brandon. So Caleb hits the ground. They take him to the hospital. He has a concussion. He was old enough that he could run around. And they tried to sedate him. He said, the doctor said he actually gave him enough sedative that it would put down a racehorse, but because Caleb had a concussion, like he just kept running and running around the hospital, and so all they could do for 48 hours was just take him home and watch. And that's, that's a scary space as a parent. Now, Brandon says at that moment he um, was full of faith because he was a guy and he knew guys are tough, and that was his little boy, and Jen was a wreck, right? So... Fast forward a few months later, their daughter, that's just a little bit older, Sydney, begins to have um, seizures. And in that moment, they take her to the doctor, and he's a wreck. And Jen is a picture of faith. And I, I draw attention to that because there's going to be times where you're going to be strong. And other people are going to be weak. And there's going to be times where you're weak and other people are going to be strong. And that's exactly the kind of picture that we have in Nehemiah chapter 4 when we stand in the gap for one another. There's going to be times and points in your life where you don't have the strength to continue. Where you're going to need someone to hold up your hands. You're going to need someone to give you the strength that they have. And it's God's mercy that we're not all that way at one time. I mean, that's a wonderful picture of marriage. I can say that. I mean, most of the time in my marriage, like if I'm having a hard time, Jen is in a strong place. If she's having a hard time, like I'm in a strong place. Thank God that God gives us these kinds of gifts as friends where we can stand in the gap for one another. And what it says is that God has designed his mission to go forward with unity and with people fighting with one another and for one another, right? And I know that that can be a scary thing, But it's also a beautiful thing. Like deep down, everybody wants a place where they can be safe. Everybody wants a place where they can be accepted. Everybody wants a place where they can join and matter. And that's the New Testament picture of the church. And that's what we see um, in the book of Nehemiah. So we fight because God fights for us. This isn't some kind of just psychobabble. This is rooted and grounded in the character of God that fights for his people. So we fight for one another. Which brings me to our final point this morning. God acts and everyone marvels. Chapter 6. God acts, everyone marvels. Chapter 6, verses 15 and 16. Let the weight of this sink in. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul, I don't know how to say that very well, in 52 days, and when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God." From beginning to end, from the point in time that Nehemiah set foot on the ground and began to rally people to his cause, 52 days 
and the walls of Jerusalem were repaired. They've been working on the interstate in West Memphis for decades, right? <laughs> this, this is amazing, right? 52 days. We may have been working on the lobby for 52 days, right? This is nothing short of the power of God. God, and what I love about this is it's long enough that they had to trust him, right? So, I mean, 52 days, that's just a little bit over seven weeks. So, I mean, they actually had to get up and put their hand to the plow. They actually had to put one stone on top of another stone, and they actually had to do that. There were going to be disagreements. There were going to be things that happened in the midst of all of that. There were armies that were marching around them. But in 52 days, the wall was complete and the nations around them were afraid because they were aware that God himself was fighting for his people and this wall was completed in his power. I mean, liberal commentators, I mean, they assume this has to be some kind of scribal error because it's 52 days. I mean, it is an absolute, it's amazing that God works like this on behalf of his people. So people marvel at the power of God. And I I think the implication for us is to try to build um, a culture of expectancy, not naivety, where we just think that God can do anything all the time and we're just kind of off in la-la land. But as we look at the most difficult circumstances, we see that God can move and God can act and God can redeem and God can restore, that God can do anything any way that he wants. So, I mean, what this does is it really does confront, do we really think God moves like this anymore, right? Do we really think that God adds the power of his spirit to our ordinary efforts and makes things grow? Or do we believe that his hands are tied, you know? Do we really functionally believe that he's somehow up in heaven wondering what he's going to do today to get his people out of a mess, Now, God has designed circumstances like these and circumstances in our lives and circumstances in this city that can only be addressed by his power. And that's a good thing for us as the people of God because we know that if it's up to us, I mean, we don't stand a chance. But when we have the power of God that is with us, it gives us real hope. We have this hope that the same God of the book of Nehemiah It's the same God that we have today. That he is absolutely the same yesterday, today, and forever. Also another thing that this gives us a picture of. Despite all of the brokenness, all of the ruin, all of the shame, that nothing can hinder the advance of God's restoration mission in the world. Right? What this, a formula emerges as you look at the book of Nehemiah. I mean, there's this God-given vision, right? God speaks to Nehemiah. He begins to pray about that vision. Then, with that vision, there is faith towards God to act. There's ownership by a large group of people. There is opposition There is perseverance, 
And there is action. And all of those things lead to one inescapable point for the people of God. That the mission of God for the people of God is absolutely unstoppable. There is no opposition that will stop the advance of the gospel. There is no amount of human brokenness that exists inside this church or outside these walls that will stop the advance of the gospel. That God himself can work in 52 days to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. But listen, we know something that they never knew. We knew the death and the destruction of the Son of God on the cross who was raised from the dead, who now rules and reigns over this planet. If God can do that in the book of Nehemiah, what might he be pleased to do in this church and in this city in the next 52 days? Right? 52 days ago, August 4th. Think about where you were. Right? I can't tell you everything I've seen in the last 52 days. But if I could, you would marvel. I have seen absolute miracles take place inside this church. God is an amazing, restoring God. 52 days from now, November 16th, if my math is correct. What would you like to see God do? Right? If he poured out his spirit on our everyday ordinary efforts and caused things to grow, what would you ask him to do? Have you grown weary in asking? Have you grown weary in trusting? Have you grown weary in believing that God can take the most difficult forms of brokenness And make them whole and beautiful. See, we have something they never had in the picture of Jesus. And Jesus in his resurrection is the down payment on the restoration of all things. What that means for us. Romans 8 describes creation itself as groaning under the weight of sin and futility and decay. So that means that the most beautiful thing that you see with your eyes is subject to bondage and decay. So my favorite view in all of Jonesboro is I drive down Mount Carmel Road and I can see right this little valley that I guess that's why they call it Valley View. Like it's, it's beautiful. It takes my breath away every time. But that is subject to to bondage and decay, it means that God is actually going to remake everything beautiful, that he's going to restore the brokenness of this world. He's going to restore the brokenness of his people, that there's going to be a day like in the book of Zephaniah where God himself sings zealously over his people that he saved, right? That song is meant to inform today as we labor, That God can do anything that he wants to do. That he's pleased to act in the midst of the most difficult circumstances. God, I believe, really does want to foster faith in our heart. To be able to continue and to engage. And I do believe that he wants us to marvel at his work. Um. It's, it's easy, I think, especially for me. I won't speak for anyone else. 
to watch God move and do amazing things and then that to become routine, you know? Um, It's a miracle that you're here this morning. It's a miracle that you ever open up the scriptures and see Jesus. Those are miracles that God is performing for us. But then when we see lives changed, right? When we see marriages restored, when we see the people of God come together and bear one another's burdens, those are all pictures of God promising to do exactly what he promised to do. So I think one of the great benefits of coming into this room weekly is that you get to marvel, right? I mean, we all do tend to live isolated lives. But as you come together, you see God's at work here, and he's at work here, and he's at work here. He's going to continue all of that until he makes everything new. That's our hope as the people of God, that God's power is pointed at his people for good. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your ability to do more than we can ask or imagine or think. I do pray that you would stir up the gift of faith and expectancy in our hearts to do things that we can't do. I thank you for where you are at work. I thank you for your great power. Thank you that this is true, that we don't have to work this up, that Jesus, you have conquered sin and death in the grave. And I pray that that would become ever more precious to us as we begin to live out your life through us for the world as you make all things new. In Jesus' name, amen.